What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, today we've got the second episode of our series on the current state of helmet tech and R&D. Rob Wesson from Giro is here to discuss the state of the helmet market and the helmet adoption that we've seen over the years. We talk a bit further about helmet safety standards and certifications. We also discuss the difference between, say, a $65 helmet and a $260 helmet. We discuss the pros and cons of adding a chin bar, which you find on full face helmets, or the pros and cons of adding a large visor, which we all see these days on enduro bike helmets. And above all, I think that you are going to come away from this conversation with an even more nuanced understanding of the factors and variables that go into helmet design. And so with that, let's get to it. Well, Rob, how are you today and where are you today? Well, great. Great to uh, talk with you. Uh, I am currently in our office in Scotts Valley, California. Um, but yeah, I just actually just got back from a trip to uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, got some mountain biking in uh, over the weekend. So yeah, so I'm ready to go. Excellent. So we're catching you fresh off of vacation, huh? Well-rested, lucid. Ready to go. Perfect. Um, well, hey, it has been, I think, literally five years since uh, we recorded a conversation like this. So I'm really interested and eager to kind of just circle back and, and get a fresh state of the union, right, on all this stuff about helmet tech and R&D. Before we jump down that road, why don't you go ahead and just give us a bit of the backstory on Jiro and Bell, just to kind of, you know, make sure that people are aware of those two companies' history and, and how they relate today. Yeah, great. So, you know, currently we, Bell and Jiro, um, are two brands who sit basically in the same office here in, in Scotts Valley, California. Um, we are owned um, by a larger corporation called Vista Outdoor. Um, but we, so we operate as a, as a kind of a standalone brand inside that umbrella. And, uh, you know, we, Bell and Giro have been together since about 1996. Um, of course, both brands were started at different times, different eras, and, and we're really different ethos. You know, uh, uh, Bell, uh, was started as a, you know, more of a power sports, auto sport racing helmet brand in the, in the fifties. Uh, Jiro was started in 1985, right here in, in Santa Cruz, as a bike helmet company, and uh, so we, you know, we 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 both are uh, striving to to make the safest helmets out there uh, to provide safety for our consumers. Um, so we share kind of that vision and that ethos, but we are two separate brands. We we come at it from a obviously from a different design aesthetic uh, point of view. And uh, so, therefore, we are, we do have, uh, you know, the brands are separated by their management, by their um, uh, design team, uh, you know, our engineers and designers uh, sit within the two brands. And we share, you know, we obviously will share uh, technologies, we'll, we share the same testing space, we, you know, our engineers and designers do talk to one another, and we do def uh, definitely collaborate on, on projects. 
we don't we try not to bring the exact same helmet to the market. Let's talk a little bit about your own role at the company because I think that's changed a bit from when we talked, you know, five years ago. Yeah, yeah, five years ago, I was uh, basically a director of R and D, um, and then probably shortly thereafter, because I've been in this current role for about four years, I moved into the vice president and general manager uh, of the whole brand. So I've been doing that for the last four years. But I'm, you know, my my background's engineering. Uh, that's my sweet spot. I still really enjoy uh, working with the design team and, and kind of getting into the, the nuts and bolts and, and uh, nitty gritty. And so, yeah, I meet with them every week and, you know, we talk about the, the current uh, projects that are on the list. Um, I give my input, but, I, you know, I have a really capable um, director, of, director of R&D now, uh, Ben Penner. And uh, so, yeah, we, we're in a good spot. Could you break down for us a little bit about like where helmet sales actually are, right? In terms of say football helmets versus motorcycle helmets versus kind of mountain biking and skiing. Could you just give us uh, either a very specific sense of this or a, a looser sense of like kind of market share with respect to these different categories? Um, well, I'll just like I, I can talk about you know obviously this, in this last year um, as you. You, know, you probably talk to other brands or um, people in the bike industry right now. Uh, you know, it, it's really hard to find a bike, find anything cycling related. And so, yeah, yeah we, you know, we didn't know what was going to, we didn't know what was going to happen when, uh, when the pandemic went into, into place. You know, I think everybody was a little bit nervous, but within, within two months, we realized, oh, things are, things are going to be very good, actually. People want to recreate, you know, there's, there's a ton of things they couldn't do but they still go out and get on a bike and they still go ride. Um, and so, yeah, sales over the last year have been robust, I would say. Um, and that's across every, every category in, um, in the bike industry. You know, the snow industry was mixed this year. Um, the, in the U S uh, most resorts uh, opened, most resorts yep. figured it out, um, you know, with the social distancing and separating people in lines. So we had, we had a good, we had a good snow season, uh, for Giro, um, in the U S in the, in Europe, it was a different story. You know, uh, France never opened a ski resort all year, all year. Germany was, you know, kind of touch and go here and there. So I'd say, you know, on the European side, yeah, sales were not great. And, uh, we had to, we had to kind of, uh, as we head into this year, we had to make some choices on on adding new colors or bringing out some new helmets uh, in Europe because they had a lot of inventory. So we had to figure out, okay, how, well, how do we how do we stretch it out and make sure that we aren't you know flooding the market and having to discount uh, helmets. And then, could you say something about sort of that broader helmet market uh, again, just to kind of put into context? So you just spoke to kind of you know, the biking world and the snow sports world. But like beyond that, I honestly just don't have a good sense of like motorcycle helmets dwarf sales in say road cycling and mountain biking. Like, can you give us any amount of context for that? Uh, well, I don't have any percentages right in front of me. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, when, when you talk about helmet sales, uh, sometimes they can be regional, you know, I mean, in, in the obviously the bike biking industry um, has been on fire across the world. Bike helmets are, are up substantially this year across the world. I'd say some, you know, power sport helmets are, are a strong category um, 
uh, you know, but they are, you know, they, they come in pockets. Obviously, the U.S. is a big market. Um, uh, mainland Europe is a big is a big area. You know, even some you know some parts of uh, Africa, um, you know, are, are are decent markets. But I don't have the exact breakdown of percentages. I would say that you know, overall, the you know helmet sales are robust. I think most people. Um, you know, consider head protection uh, in their sport uh, an important thing to, uh, you know, to, to protect their head. So that, and depending on the person, they, they may decide to uh, replace a helmet at a certain uh, interval um, because A, their, their helmet is, you know, either way old, um, they don't trust it anymore, or they have had a crash. High-end athletes or athletes that are, you know, competing at the high end, you know, probably replace their, have a different helmet every year. Whereas a regular consumer might only replace their helmet every five or seven years. And do you have some kind of clear sense of when it really started to get a lot more accepted? Where like, if you're going to be skiing, snowboarding, mountain biking, like put a helmet on, you know, because like I'd say certainly we go back to the 80s, right? I mean, so we go back 40 years, this was a lot less common but I don't know if for you, you identify a clear mark of like, this is when it really started to get really, really accepted that like, it's just a good idea to be strapping a helmet onto your head if you're going to go do some of these things we all do. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. You, I, you know, in cycling, for example, I mean, I grew up, I grew up bike racing when I was a teenager and um, that was the, you know, early early to mid eighties. And, you know, helmets were changing at that time. I mean, when I first started bike racing, I was wearing a leather hairnet, you know, wasn't going to do much, but it was, it was what was kind of the standard at the time. And then, um, you know, early, early mid eighties, the same time was when, um, kind of the beginning of the standard, you know, polystyrene, uh, plastic covered, you know, helmets started to show up and they were lightweight and they offered more protection. And, um, and they, you know, they were required for racing, right? Um, but it's interesting, you know, it wasn't, I don't think it was in, forget the year, um, you know, in the, in the pro peloton, I don't think, you know, I think the riders didn't have to wear a helmet, maybe up, I was going to say maybe 2001, 2002, you know, they would have their helmet on and then they would come to the, the final climb and you'd see riders take their helmet off and throw it off to the side of the road. It wasn't required and they didn't want to wear it going uphill. So, so fast forward to today. If I get on my road bike and I go for a road bike ride here in Santa Cruz County, it would, it's pretty rare, uh, but it does happen. Sometimes I'll see a road cyclist, uh, you know, somebody who's in a kit, you know, kn- knows, you know, or maybe former racer or whatever. It's, but I, I, I occasionally see somebody out there riding without a helmet. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you get into town and you see, you know, a recreational cyclist or somebody just commuting to work, you know. There's, there's there's a fair amount of people who don't wear helmets, but for the most part, you're you're, you're going to see a cyclist with a helmet. I can't remember the last time I went on a mountain bike ride, you know, and it's you know mountain bike trails around here are are fairly busy. Can't remember the last time I was out in the woods and saw somebody riding a mountain bike without a helmet. You know, you you're out there. There's there's trees. There's roots. There's rocks. I think most people just figure, yeah, the, the helmet is a necessary piece of equipment. On the snow side, it that all depends, you know, I think the, the snow helmets, you know, snow helmets really weren't a thing until late nineties. 
you know, it's kind of when the snow helmet thing started to happen and uh, adoption of snow helmets. We, you know, if you, if you look back over the years, you'll see that when high profile deaths happened on the mountain, um, you know, i.e. Uh, Sonny Bono, um, was, there, are, there are a couple other ones that I, I forget, but, you know, those years that, that those high profile deaths happened, the next year you saw kind of a bump in, in sales and snow helmets. Now you go to a ski area today, um, uh, you know, say here in the U.S., you go up to Tahoe, um, you're in Jackson Hole, you know, you're down in Mammoth, you're down at, you're over in Colorado, uh, 98% of the skiers and snowboarders out there uh, are going to have helmets on. You know, there, there's obviously still a few people who don't, who don't uh, either believe in it, don't want to wear it, you know, whatever their reason. Um, but majority, majority of people wearing helmets. Let's talk just at least briefly about safety certifications. We just published a conversation last week with Stola from Sweet Protection and his, uh, let me, I'll try a quick and dirty summation of what Stola said, but, you know, he kind of talked about the two different standards, kind of the European standard and the North American standard, talked briefly about how they differ largely. I think it's fair to say he said one focuses a bit more on high speed impacts. The other focuses a bit more on lower speed impacts. And then he also said that neither standard yet uh, focuses or, or tests for rotational forces or impacts. First question, is that a fair summation or anything you want to add to that just in terms of our understanding about the current safety certifications for bike and snow sports helmets? Yeah, gen generally that's a, that's a true statement. There are a couple, you know, nuances here. I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, one standard tests, you know, completely low impacts and one standard tests completely high impacts. You know, they're, they were made by two different, uh, governmental organizations and bodies, you know, that, that are looking at test standards for a variety of, 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 uh, products, right? Um, so the, the difference between a, uh, the EN, which is the European standard, and the CPSC, which is the U.S. standard, that the impact uh, speeds that you're testing at are only slightly different. Okay, they're not. They're not. It's not one's real low and one's real high. They're 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 off by a little bit, right? Um, uh, but Stola was correct in that uh, you know the the different standards have different anvils that you drop the helmet onto. Um, and uh, the rigs or the equipment that you do the testing on are also different. So CPSC uses uh, typically a, a rigid or what we call a twin wire, and the helmet is dropped onto an anvil, and it may bounce, but it stays connected to the rig. The EN, 10 sta uh, EN standard, uh, you're dropping a head form kind of in a free fall situation. And when it hits the anvil, it actually can bounce and kind of bounce out of the way, right? So you're on, it's on a tether. They're both testing for the same thing. They're both testing for, uh, you know, impact energy uh, that is transferred to the head. They're just doing it in a slightly different way. Just to make sure no one 
thinks that Stola mischaracterized, like that was my generalization of the two tests. And so you can hold me responsible for that, not not Stola. But you're saying that there's quite a bit of overlap in terms of impact speeds. Yeah, I wouldn't say they're on the extreme. They're 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 fairly close. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other thing, too, is, again, going back to the anvils, you know, every test standard tests on a flat anvil. Right. But then some one test or another might have you do uh, a hemi, you know, so you're testing on a kind of a curved surface or actually an, an actual sharp curb, you know, and then where you put that curb um, is specified in the, in the test standard. So, you know, each each standard, uh, each standard requires us, you know, to, to pass those certain qualifications. Um, and, and yeah, by, by, by doing both, uh, it's complicated because you, you have you have to do you have to you have to design a helmet around two different standards for certifications on two different standards you know and all that. But what it really does is I think it makes you know probably at this point makes a better helmet. You know, ideally we would love to see European and, and CPSC standards you know come together and be one standard that is fully comprehensive, right? So we only had to do you know uh, one one standard to meet, but that's not the way it is. And, and so currently we, we, do, we do two. Actually, actually we do three because if you're selling into Australia, they've got a different standard, right? So, you know, we, it's interesting. We sell into New Zealand, which is, you know, right close to Australia. Uh, they accept EN uh, tested helmets. So New Zealand gets EN standard helmets, but Australia has to go through a separate Australia test standard to be able to sell there. So how do you guys approach this you know on the Giro side and on the bell side do you just say for each specific model you're making this model we might go and get you know certified on both of those standards sometimes we'll decide this model is only going to get one of the standards sometimes you're going to do just the Australian standard or, or all three. Does this go case by case depending on the model? Or do you have more of a blanket like we always get certified for two and then sometimes we do something different on the Australian side? How do you do that internally? Well, we're, we're, we're a well-established global company. And so our consumers, no matter where you live around the world, yeah, expect that they can get whatever helmet we make in the country that they live in. And so all of our helmets go through all the standards uh, so that we can sell globally. Huh. So, I mean, again, this is, I'm actually hearing about the Australian standard for the first time. I assume that just means it has to, you have to be able to hook up like a Foster beer can on the side of your helmet. Sorry to all my Australian friends. So you're saying Giro and every Bell helmet would actually have these three certifications. Yes, all of the all the helmets that are going to be sold um, into those countries. I think you know Bell may have some models that they don't sell into uh, uh, into Australia, for example. But for the most part, yes, all all helmets that we design, the goal always is is to have helmets that can sell globally, no matter where what country you're in. All right, let's talk about helmet R&D and helmet tech today. Where, in your opinion, have the biggest advances been made? And I'll, I'll throw out some contenders for answers, right? So could be just on our 
the biggest thing might be on our understanding of the brain and brain injuries. It could be on the fit and shape side of things, could be materials, weight, ventilation, or durability. Those are just a few potential answers, and maybe you have a different one. Well, I think the first place to start at is, is what the, the consumer expectation is. Um, you know, I think consumers expect, you know, when they buy a helmet, they want to know that obviously it, it, it's, it's safe. You know, they're not buying it for no reason. They, they're buying it to protect their head. You know, the, I would say helmets, other than designs, you know, helmets really haven't changed since we talked five years ago. You know, we, we continue to make uh, small gains here and there. Uh, we continue to learn um, about how some new materials can maybe allow a vent slightly bigger. You know, I'll jump back to our conversation about, you know, the anvils that we have to drop helmets onto. I mean, those those haven't changed, right? So the size of the curb, um, you know, hasn't changed at all. So as we, as we look at designs and helmets, we can decide, okay, you know, say we're making a high-end road helmet and... You know, our athletes are saying, hey, ventilation, up, up, other than safety, ventilation is the most important. I'm okay to have a slightly heavier helmet, um, you know, 20, 30 grams heavier than the previous helmet. But if you can improve ventilation, um, you know, that's, that's my number one um, priority, right? So we will set the design team to go out and, and really look at, okay, well, how, how are we going to meet that requirement from our consumer? Um, and so we, we, you know, we, we will look at some uh, possibly some new materials that, uh, you know, provide better strength or better, um, you know, force dissipation uh, over the helmet or around a vent um, that allow us to kind of open that up. And you're looking at some maybe some new materials that can uh, allow you to uh, move vents around slightly or increase the size of a vent. Um, you know, we're also looking at uh, computer, computer modeling of airflow through helmets and so you know not a lot of times uh, the size of a vent doesn't really matter um you know if you don't have the right parameters or if you don't have the right intake and outflow of air you can make a vent huge and uh it's not going to it's not going to allow air to flow in right so you, you really it's, it's not just about the number of vents or size it really is the the whole package and you, you really have to understand uh, how airflow works um you know what causes it to flow well and what what will block it and so um so I, as my team is, is looking at that we obviously are taking you know the the experience we've gotten from past helmets and you know you learn something new every time you go through a, a process and uh, you basically create a a book of knowledge of uh, best practices and you keep building upon that. So I'd say that that, you know, over the last five years, we, we, we continue to learn, you know, what makes helmets um, more aerodynamic. Uh, I'd say probably one of the biggest things we've seen over the last five years is five years ago, five, seven, ten years ago, you know, aerodynamic helmet had to be fully enclosed. What we found out is, you know, as we go through the process and we do some trial and error and we do some computer modeling, we can figure out that, oh, you can actually have a, a vent, well-designed vent, uh, that won't affect the aerodynamics of the helmet. You know, so now you're seeing a lot more, uh, you know, what we call aero road helmets that uh, are aerodynamic, more aerodynamic than, you know, than a helmet 10 years ago, even five years ago, but also breathes well. 
right? And so that's the kind of the best of both worlds for an athlete. You know, now they don't have to, they don't have to choose, okay, today I'm going to wear the, you know, enclosed hot aero helmet versus, you know, the, the, the well-ventilated open, but not very fast helmet. Now, now helmets are, are become, you know, that, that gap is starting to close quite a bit. Do you have a sense of this like clear priority list? Like the number one thing in terms of feedback we get from consumers is that we want helmets to be lighter weight or prettier colors or, you know, like, do you have this clear order of concerns? I mean, we just talked about aerodynamics and ventilation, or is it not so nice and neat to be able to give us a clear, um, you know, pecking order of consumer wants? This is bracketing the question of, well, it's like, cool, uh, we could do that, but it's going to actually be less safe than the hum- the helmets we are selling and putting out there. So again, just talking about the feedback you're getting from consumers, is it a clear kind of pecking order? Uh, I wouldn't say that it's, it's it's one clear, you know, clear priority list. Uh, it depends on the consumer. Um, you know, one thing you didn't mention in there is price. You know, the, depending on the consumer, the, the price drives their decision to buy, right? I say price, price and aesthetics. Uh, does it look good? You know, am, am I am I attracted to that design? And certainly, when I put it on my head, do I feel good in this helmet? Do I feel like I, I look okay or dorky on me? Um, so it's it's really you know for for a lot of people it's aesthetics and then the price. You know, does does the price look like uh, you know does the helmet look like it it it's uh, the right value for the price? Um, so I think that that's something we always have to take into consideration. Maybe where you're going on this is is uh, you know, as a consumer looks at, you know, the price of the helmet um, versus the, say, the features, um, you know, what what's the difference there? Um, you know, we, uh, as we talked earlier, you know, we, we sell a, a $65, you know, um, MIPS equipped, you know, mountain bike helmet called the Fixture. It's an incredibly, um, you know, uh, incredibly popular helmet. Uh, because of the design, uh, you know, it comes in multiple graphics um, and comes with a MIPS you know, equip system for rotational energy management. Uh, and the price is, is, a, is a pretty sweet price point for, for a lot of people. Very well, the helmet. You know, if you want to, if you want to go race your mountain bike, um, that's probably not the helmet you're looking at. You're probably looking at something that is going to, you know, obviously, again, look good and, you know, have obviously fit within a price structure that you can afford, but you might be looking at a helmet that's in the $200 range. And uh, what you're going to get with that, and there's some, you know, some of the reasons why the cost is up, is because that helmet took uh, a lot lot more design and development time and resources to to get it to the weight it is, to get it to the ventilation it is. Um, you know, on the mountain side, it's not so important for aerodynamics, but you know, if, if you're looking at a road helmet and aerodynamics is important, you know, we've got to, you know, we have to do wind tunnel testing um, that we do. Um, it's the computer modeling. So that's that's really going to drive the difference in cost uh, for different helmets. From a safety standpoint, you know, the, the helmets, the, the $65 helmet and the $250 helmet, they, they both meet the, the different standards across, you know, the world globally. Um, 
they're they're both going to be within you know within a similar range of, of test scores um, that are obviously underneath the uh, the, the requirement and uh, and ones that we feel very confident in, in selling to the public. Um, but really, it does come down to the the engineering and design time. To uh, yeah, and I, I'm kind of got in mind now. You you mentioned the fixture MIPS about a sixty five dollar MIPS helmet, which is pretty remarkable for that price point. And then I'm looking at the the Giro Manifest spherical helmet, two hundred and sixty dollars, right? And I would be interested in asking a related question here. One of the things that we had talked about some years ago, either with you or with Stola, was the implementation of these different MIPS systems and the idea that like not all implementations are necessarily created equal. So as a designer, talk a little bit about that. I'm not sure if that's something, if that implementation of a MIPS system, if that in itself is going to be something that might drive up a price point. Or if that's not really a price issue, it's related to other concerns, you know, intrinsic to the design of a given helmet. Well, I think the, the two helmets that you uh, just talked about, I think, are, are great examples of, of the difference. I mean, both systems, so the fixture MIPS has a, what we call a standard, you know, MIPS low friction liner. Uh, it's basically a, a plastic molded uh, liner that is attached to the inside of the EPS uh, helmet. And it's attached by four kind of rubber grommets. And that's, that's what allows the, the movement to happen, okay? Um, great system, does, works great for, you know, rotational energy management. That's kind of where MIPS, you know, where the, the starting of MIPS. Um, but as, you know, like anything, you try to make something better. Each time you, each time you come out with a new helmet, you're trying to improve. And where we've gotten to on um, the spherical is, you know, if you if you look at that, the, the MIPS helmet, sorry, the, the fixture helmet, you know, uh, what we heard from from some customers was, is, hey, that plastic liner uh, doesn't feel great against my head. Right. Or some people would say, oh, you know, especially especially if you're if you don't have a lot of hair. So if you're kind of balding. And stuff, people are like, yeah, it doesn't feel great against my head, or oh, I feel like I sweat more, you know, because my head's up against this plastic piece. So, you know, so as we as we do this development, you know, we say, well, how can how can we how can we get rid of those bad parts but still keep the good part of MIPS and the rotation? And that's really what kind of led to our whole spherical development is. Um, so now instead of just having one, you know, uh, molded um, EPS uh, helmet where you're putting in a separate layer, we decided, well, what, what if we, what if we made two EPS liners, right? And they were to rotate on each other, right? So we're still keeping the rotational management uh, of MIPS. Um, you're getting the benefit of that. But now the inside of the helmet, if you flip it over, it looks just like your old helmet, right? It's just, it's, it's just the, the energy absorbing liner and a padding system, you know, for comfort. And now, now you've gotten rid of the kind of the negatives of, of what some consumers would, would you know, were calling out. And we were able to improve, you know, the, the overall helmet. Um, but again, you know, to figure that out, to figure out, okay, how do you, you know, now we've got to, you know, create two different tools, you know, mold the helmets, 
now the you know maybe the the assembly time is long you know uh the complexity of the helmet is is more so you know the factory is not going to just make the helmet for the same price as the other helmet right so they're going to charge us more so that that's again goes into you know the development time um the engineering time and then the complexity in manufacturing to, uh, to bring that helmet to market that's what would drive you know a cost mm-hmm. I, I i really like this conversation i think that sometimes people can just kind of be like well why would i pay more for that helmet when this other one is sort of just as safe And it's like, okay, fine, but there's a whole lot of other considerations and factors going into this. And you just really well articulated like the manufacturing processes, you know, or the R&D or looking to make a similar system more comfortable. And then there's all the ventilation stuff. And so I think this is useful in terms of I think what we're going to be able to do through this series of conversations is just help people understand, like, just keep in mind that there are a number of legitimate factors and variables, some of which you will not care about and others you're going to care a whole lot about. And I think for, you know, like we always like to do things where hopefully we're making us all like better, more informed consumers and just being a little bit clearer, you know, like as a mountain biker, I just don't care about aerodynamics. I just don't. Right. But I sure care about a lot of other factors. And if I was a Strava guy on my road bike all the time, I'd care a hell of a lot more about things like ventilation and aerodynamics and the like. And so I think, I think you guys we're off to a good start in terms of chopping up like, okay, uh, you know, and then, and then like you rightly say like, Hey man, price is huge. And the aesthetics of these things is huge. Don't, it's always funny when I talk to apparel designers and they want it, they're real proud about this new tech that they've nerded out about. And sometimes people just come in and they're like, that's great. Give me the blue one. (laughs) You know, like, okay, well, great. You can have the blue one, right? Couple last things I want to ask you about before I let you go. You know, Again, dating back to our last round of conversations five years ago, we talked in those conversations about if we go back to focusing sort of really exclusively, say, on safety, then in terms of shape, um, I think you and Stola both agreed that we would want to have a pretty smooth spherical shape. And so I'd, I'd invite people to think about like the shape of a, of a ski race, a downhill ski race helmet, right? Now, when we go to things like a full face helmet or the popular style of trail slash enduro mountain bike helmets that have these big visors coming off the top, well, neither of those things get us to our you know, platonic ideal of the spherical shape. So could you talk a little bit about how you think about those things as a designer who has to care about safety, but maybe safety in a bunch of different ways? So could we maybe start with like the full face helmet? And, you know, and and again, I'm thinking about that. I, you know, I broke my neck four years ago. And sometimes I think about wearing a full face going over the bars. And I'm like, I'm not sure that I would love to have a chin to ground impact in a full face and that it, you know, that's going to seems like it could pretty violently push the head back in a way that the hardware in my C6, C7 
might not like so much. So again, talk to me a little bit about like how you think about these various concerns. Yeah. So, you, you know, you are correct. I mean, if you could wear a, a perfectly, you know, round ball on your head, uh, close to your head, uh, and then it, it provided all the impact, you know, management you needed, um, then you, you would have a, a less rotational uh, energy, you know, in an impact situation. But you have to balance out the needs of the rider um, and, and, and look for novel ways to make sure you're providing protection uh, all around. So your, your full face helmet example, um, you know, helmets with a, a MIPS or similar uh, rotational energy management system, I think are super important, uh, especially in these helmets that are starting to extend away from your head more. Because you're right, if, if you were to fall under your chin bar, if you were to, you know, to, um, or you talked about visors too, if you were to hit your visor on the ground, a um, couple of things, you know, having a rotational energy management system in your helmet allows that uh, to dissipate that rotational energy that you would have if, you know, if you didn't have a MIPS or if you didn't have a rotational management uh, system, uh, you know, hitting your chin bar could wrench your neck, could could turn your head faster than your brain really wants to go. Um, but, you know, having the energy manage rotational management system in there will mitigate that. The other thing you're looking at is, okay, well, you know, guys who are, or guys or gals who are riding uh, pretty gnarly terrain, uh, you know, go down. It's, it's just it's fundamental fact, right? So, you know, we also want to protect people's nose, teeth, you know, face and not, you know, not all crashes are, are happening at huge speeds. You know, um, they can be just tip overs. And if you just, if you haven't moved your, 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 your uh, head out of the way or turned your cheek, um, you know, you could lose a couple teeth. And so I think having, you know, if you're riding that kind of terrain and the chances of you going down and falling on your face are high, then I think it behooves you to have a full face helmet on. Um, because, you know, I think that, that that's you you want to protect that part of your face um you know visors visors are on for multiple reasons uh most of the time it's it's just to keep the sun out of your eyes um but it's also uh you know it's it's also fashionable right i mean that's that's what uh, an enduro or downhill rider wants to wear it's you know i think it's interesting if you look at cross-country mountain bike racing you know uh, cross-country they all wear road helmets well, why do they wear, wear road helmets? Well, road helmets are are lighter. Uh, they're more, you know, they're more aerodynamic. They're um, they're they're uh, have better ventilation than say a mountain style helmet. And you know that rider chooses to not need a visor because they're probably wearing sunglasses. Um, but that's not always happening, you know, for the enduro rider or mountain bike rider who's in the trees in the woods. Um, you know, you've got sun coming in and. Uh, through the trees and it sometimes you can get some shadows so i think the visor there helps there we obviously when we we look at our helmet designs we also make sure that the visors are not made of a, a you know really rigid material so if you do fall on them they will bend um they will bend out of the way or sometimes we make you know visors that have uh that that pop off that you can then re 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 reattach so you have to balance all the design elements uh, of what a consumer wants out of a helmet, not 
not just the you know the impact or rotational energy management system, but the, the whole system. Well, hey, Rob, I really appreciate the time. It's great to kind of reconnect with you and just get your take on the state of things. And uh, I think we are uh, we are now better informed about helmets than we were before we started this conversation. So thank you very much. You're welcome. It was great. Great catching up with you. Let's, let's not do it in another five years. Deal. All right, Rob, you take care. Sounds good. See you. All right, it is time now for the What We're Celebrating segment, and I have in my hand, at this moment, a glass of Whistlepig 12-year-old rye whiskey. Now, I've got to hurry up because I am supposed to catch a ride with some friends down to Gunnison, and this actually brings me to the point of what I'm celebrating this week. Well, one, I guess I will celebrate designated drivers and friends who are willing to drive you down to Gunnison so you can drink Whistlepig whiskey before you leave. Then we're going to celebrate the comeback of concerts and movie premieres. We are heading down to Gunnison. I now have four minutes till I'm supposed to meet them to uh, to catch Matchstick Productions' new film, A Biker's Ballad. So uh, we're very excited to see this new film. There's going to be some incredible riding. I already know that for sure. And it's going to be a fun night hanging out with friends and like other people, which we didn't get to do for, I don't know, more than a year. So cheers to all of that. That then brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Rob Wesson for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.